So yes, uh, my topic this morning is the Council of Jerusalem in 49 AD. And I knew I was going to do this. It's been um, bouncing around in my brain for about a year since the last time I preached. Um, that this was something that I wanted to spend a little more time with. Because I knew one or two things about it that I thought were important to say. And then I started researching it and discovered that the one or two things that I thought were important and that I should say weren't the most important things about it. Um, I, I found out some other things about it. I discovered it's not very well known and not very much written on. I could only find one book. Um, you know, when you go on Amazon, you put a topic in and you only find one book that comes up, because something's up. Um, this book, The Meeting That Changed the World, that's a great title and an apropos one for the event. Um, and I, I started reading the book with high hopes. It's got a couple of things that made me raise an eyebrow. Um, the author is English. He's he's a layman, not a professional historian. That's okay. Some of the best histor- historical books I've ever read were by people who weren't professional historians. Um, he's Roman Catholic. That's okay, too, because we're talking about first century, so everybody pretty much has the same view of things. Um, but then as I read through it, I, I discovered more and more, and he's um, just a little bit on the woke side of things. And his rabbit trails go places that, that make me scratch my head. On the other hand, boy, does he have a grasp of the scriptural accounts and how they go together and what the most important parts of this council were. And it, it, his observations challenged me to go back and look at the accounts of this council much more closely. And I, many of the things that he pointed out, I thought, were just extremely insightful. So some of this is going to be me and some of this is going to be him. The guy's name is Michael Knowles. Um, with those caveats, it's an interesting book. Um, but hopefully after you hear the sermon today, you won't have to read it. <laughs> I don't know whether to pray for pray for all of you or pray for myself. I have a bunch of slides. And not nearly as much time. I'm, I'm used to speaking for 90 minutes. Every class I teach is 90 minutes. I teach five classes a week to high school kids. Actually, no. Five courses, ten classes a week to high school kids. Lisa's already moving out of the way. She knows what's... So I can see the slide. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, you, you know, you, you turn on the microphone, and uh, in my case, I turn on the webcam, and I'm, I'm primed. I'm ready to go for 90 minutes. And I want to give you a quiz at some point. I won't do that. I won't do either of those. I won't go 90 minutes, and I won't give you a quiz. I promise. Let me pray. Uh, I'll pray for you as well as for me that I can get through this material in a way that is um, helpful, useful, um, and exhorts us all with what the Scriptures have to teach us and why this is important. So pray with me. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for all the many ways in which you have so richly blessed us. Thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name, to worship, to sing together, to fellowship, um, to see our brother Phil standing up here at the podium again. We give you thanks for his recovery and restoration and pray for a a complete healing um, very quickly. Give me your words to speak. Help me to interpret the scriptures rightly. Help me to highlight and emphasize the things that you want emphasized. Send your spirit to give me the words to say, keep me from going off on rabbit trails. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we talk about church councils, most people think of 
um, you know, the Council of Nicaea, or um, maybe people think about Chalcedon, and those are the third, fourth century. You think about the, if you're a historian, think about the Council of Trent, or the First Vatican Council, or the Second Vatican Council, but really and truly, the first council of the church is the Council of Jerusalem in 49 AD, and we have an account of what happened at that council in the book of Acts. The history of the church is very well documented, and we have it by um, one of the preeminent historians of the first century, Luke. Luke is very careful with his sources and his dates and his details. And so we know quite a bit about what happened, and when you see the details, it helps to understand the whole arc of the book of Acts. As it turns out, the account of this council is smack dab in the middle of the book of Acts. And in some ways, the first 14 chapters lead up to this, and the rest of the book of Acts is the consequences of this. And let me show you if I can uh, flip over. Actually, let me, let me make a couple of notes first about why I think Luke is so important. If you can flip to the next slide. There we go. So these are sort of bedrock assertions for me. God in his sovereignty inspired each of the authors of the books of the Bible such that they were preserved from including any error in what they wrote. That's what I believe about the scriptures. I don't think that the writers of the scriptures were robots. I don't think the Holy Spirit was guiding their hand and they were automatons. I think they were human beings with personalities and points of view. But I also believe that God and his Holy Spirit guided them and guarded them and that what we have is not just true, but that God prevented them from including any error in what they wrote. So my second principle is God in his sovereignty guided the early church, the apostles, the church councils in their reception and recognition of which writings were inspired and authoritative. The church councils didn't confer any authority on any of these writings. It's not like they decided, oh, we like this. Let's put this in the canon because we like the things that it says. The church councils recognized which writings God had inspired. They weren't saying we would like to give authority to this writing and not to this one. It's like, no, no, God has clearly inspired this by its reception and affirmation by all the church churches. All the, the elders and bishops and leaders all recognize this as authoritative. So it's the consensus of recognition of inspiration. And the third point, God in his sovereignty guided the course of history and church history such that the text of the books of the Bible was faithfully transmitted to us without any substantial error. And... Um, Go back to the sermons I preached last year if you want more on that, because I, I went for two Sundays on how we got the Old Testament and the New Testament text that we have now. All right, next slide. I got a map. Two things that I, I love to do with history. Um, one is geography and the other is genealogy. So the geography is what matters here. This is Paul's first missionary journey. And I have it up here because this actually occurs just before the Council of Jerusalem. This actually, you got to go 13, 14 chapters into the book of Acts to get to this account. There's a lot of history that goes before it. Um, and there's a better map that closes in, zooms in a little bit on that journey. Paul was converted by being knocked off his horse by a bright light and Jesus spoke to him. 
said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He gives that account actually um, three times toward the end of the book after he's been arrested and he's on trial. And he's on his way to Damascus. And he's converted. And the church doesn't quite know what to do with him. Um, he has to leave Damascus because the people who he were, who he was engaged in helping to persecute the early followers of Jesus now are after him. The Sanhedrin's after Paul, Saul, because he has broken ranks. He has, in their eyes, committed treason. He has gone over to the enemy. He has become a follower of Jesus, the Messiah. And so the Sanhedrin now wants to arrest him. So he has to escape from Damascus. And we don't know for about 10 years really what was going on. Luke doesn't tell us. Paul doesn't tell us. There are just a few hints. But he winds up at the end of that time in Antioch. And Antioch, just north of the S in Syria there, Antioch and Jerusalem are the two places where the largest number of Christians begin to gather and assemble. They become, Antioch is a hugely important city. Um, it's a, also a, an office of Roman administration like Jerusalem. There's its own province. Um, so there are Roman officials there. It's a Greek city with Greek cultural roots. It's a, a merchant city. It's a wealthy city. It's a city with a substantial Jewish population and synagogues and Christians. Very early, within 10 years of Jesus' death, there's a community of Christians in Antioch. And that's where Paul goes. And they commission him. They commission Paul and Barnabas to go out as missionaries to proclaim Jesus the Messiah. And they go to other Jewish communities and then they discover that after they preach in the synagogues in the places that they go, that there are Gentiles who start to come and want to hear the news and the message as well and are converted to follow Christianity. And this raises some questions and some issues. So this is Paul's first journey with um, Barnabas. They, they go from Antioch across to the island of Cyprus. They preach across the island of Cyprus from one end to the other. There are two big cities and a bunch of little ones. Then they go from Cyprus to um, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and they hit about five cities, um, and you see the arrows going up and going down because they hit those cities, and then they retrace their paths, and they go back to Antioch. And they come back with the news that everywhere they've gone, not only are there Jews in the synagogues, who accept their message that Jesus is the Messiah, but that there are Gentiles who are also accepting the good news that Jesus is the Messiah and that by his death and resurrection, our sins can be forgiven. So that first missionary journey, this is probably too small for a lot of you to see, but the numbers are the chapters in the book of Acts. This little outline, not my own, but I think it's a good one talks about the foundation of the church and the founder of church is Paul, so about half of the book of Acts traces Paul, but not the first half. The first half starts with Peter and then with Philip and then with Paul. Next slide. Got to get through this quick. There's the council. The council of Jerusalem is after that first missionary journey, and it's because of the circumstances that have happened during the first missionary journey 
it's an answer to the question of what are we going to do with these Gentiles who want to be followers of Jesus? We, we know what it means for a Jew to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Well, what about a Gentile? Next slide. There you go. Yeah. So, and Luke apparently joined Paul on his second journey. So everything up to this is what Luke has gathered by interviewing people. And Luke is just an incredibly meticulous researcher. He speaks to everybody. He records accounts from everybody. This is the second book of history that he wrote. Um, but for the second half of the book of Acts, he's an eyewitness and a companion. He's with Paul all the way through until his imprisonment in Rome, and then the book ends with Paul in prison. Among other things, Luke almost certainly um, spoke to the other apostles and disciples in Jerusalem, and he clearly spoke to Mary, the mother of Jesus, because only Luke has some details about what Mary knew and what Mary remembered from Jesus' birth. Okay. So one of the interesting questions is, what did the followers of Jesus, the disciples, the 12 and then the others, what did they believe about him? And when did they come to believe that he was the Messiah? But that doesn't settle all of the issues about Jesus because... It was not clear that the Jews understood that the Messiah would be God incarnate. The Messiah would be the anointed one. The Messiah would be the deliverer of Israel. But they thought of, and the son of David, they thought of the Messiah as someone who would restore the nation of Israel, restore the sovereignty of the nation, recreate the kingdom. It's not clear from the scripture, well, I take it back. It is clear from the scriptures what God had foretold about the incarnation. But it was not clear to the Jews of the first century. They had a hard time putting all those things together. So, and here's a, a real interesting example of that. On the day of the resurrection, you know, we, we tell the story. We just did Resurrection Sunday. We tell the story of the women coming to the tomb and then Peter and John getting the news from the women that the tomb was empty and running to the tomb and seeing that it's empty. And then Jesus appearing to them and speaking to them first to um, women at, at the tomb and then later to the disciples themselves. But later that same day, there are two of the disciples, not of the 12, but two in the, in the pretty close circle, who apparently have decided that, you know, well, Jesus has been crucified. That didn't pan out. The Messiah is not supposed to be killed by the Romans. The Messiah is supposed to lead us to victory over the Romans. So they're leaving. They're headed out of Jerusalem. They're headed to Emmaus. And Jesus, they don't know it's Jesus, but Jesus approaches them. He hears they're talking to each other as they're walking along. And Jesus said, what are you talking about? And they said, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. They killed him, and it's been three days and nothing has happened. We're going home. 
We, we had our hopes on him. They believed he was the Messiah. They didn't realize he was the incarnate God himself in human flesh. So we get an interesting progression here. They, and Jesus, of course, comes back and says, yeah, next slide, yeah, there is the emphasis. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. That's probably true for all of the disciples. Even though Jesus tried to prepare them, tried to teach them, tried to tell them what was going to happen, this is what most of them thought. Probably all of them thought. Next slide. So Jesus opens their minds. What a great phrase. you got to admire what Luke is saying here. Jesus opened their mind. This is to the two that he's started up a conversation with. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, saying, guys, it was there. It was there all along. You didn't understand it. You didn't recognize it, but it was there. Let me show you. This is Jesus speaking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There's a very interesting detail in all of that. Um, yeah, next page. There you go. You know, sometimes translations illuminate and sometimes translations obscure. And I am not a Greek scholar. I dabble. Um, I know a little Greek is about this high. Um, now, I can use Strong's and Vines and um, get a little bit of a sense. So um, I kind of backtracked after I had looked further in the book of Acts to come back to this because it's Luke. This phrase, this is Jesus' explanation to his disciples. That the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The word for nations there is the same word that almost everywhere else in the New Testament is translated Gentiles. It's the Greek word ethnos. And to all the ethnos, to all the Gentiles, Jesus is telling them something really radical. Then they're still, they're not ready for this. I mean, they're just getting their heads wrapped around the fact that he was the Messiah, that he's been resurrected, that he was God. And now he's saying, oh yeah, by the way, you gotta go preach now, not just to the Jews and all the synagogues in the Roman Empire. You gotta go proclaim this to all the Gentiles. It's the Hebrew word goy, goyim. And, and like I say, I, 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 I scratch my head over why the translators should not um, do that a little bit better. Okay, so back to our chart of the book of Acts. Jesus says you're going to proclaim this message to the Jews, and that's Peter, the day of Pentecost, proclaiming it in Jerusalem. And the next slide. And to the Samaritans, that's Philip. Philip went and preached in Samaria. 
book of Acts records that and made converts. And the Jews in Jerusalem are like, wait a minute, we don't like them. They're, they're mixed breed, they're heretic, they, they, they worship false gods, they have their own temple that's not the right temple. But Philip comes back and says, they believed, they were baptized, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Next slide. And to all the nations, to the Gentiles, Jesus said this. The book of Acts records how it was fulfilled. To the Jews, to the Samaritans, and to the Gentiles. And you see right there at the beginning, this is why this particular um, chapter, chapter 15, is important. Paul comes back from that first missionary journey, and he's had a very similar experience to Philip going and preaching to the Samaritans who believe and are baptized in the Holy Spirit falls on him. He comes back and says, hey, we preached in the synagogues everywhere we went. But then very often they threw us out of the synagogues, so we preached to the Gentiles, and they believed and were baptized, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And some people from Jerusalem come to Antioch, and they've heard about these things, and they say, well, all of these new believers who believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they need to be circumcised and become Jews and start keeping all the Jewish laws and customs. This is the return. They sail to Antioch. This is, this is the homecoming out of that first journey where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They've been commissioned. Paul and Barnabas have been commissioned by the church in Antioch to go out and preach the gospel. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's their report. Here's how it went, guys. Surprise. Next chapter. But some men came down from Judea. That is, they came down from Judea to Antioch. Why is that down? Because you're going from south to north. Down because Jerusalem is 1,000 feet up and Antioch is on the coast. So if you go from Jerusalem to Antioch, you're going down from an elevated high plateau down to the plain. So some men from came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These were Christians in Jerusalem. These were followers of Jesus, the Messiah. These were, were those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus had risen from the dead. They believed in the resurrection. But they said, but, but Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He came in fulfillment of the Jewish Old Testament prophets. If you want to follow Jesus the Messiah, you have to become Jewish to follow Jesus the Messiah. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, there's a wonderful understatement, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
the first church council. The first time there's a meeting of all of the leaders. There are representatives from Antioch, and there are the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and there's an important question laid before them. Are what these people say in the first verse, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's the, yeah, I know, going up, just uh, we're so used to saying up and down is north and south. So they went up by going south. They did. They went from, they went from Antioch to Jerusalem. Probably 49 AD. And the party of the Pharisees. These are Pharisees who have become Christians. Think about that. We know from the Gospels, from John and from Luke, that there were Pharisees who became Christians. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's not the only Pharisee who became a Christian. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter's already had him. Peter's already been to Joppa and was approached by a Roman centurion who invited him to his home, and Peter has that moment of... Um, Shock, anguish, indecision. It says, Lord, how can I do this? He's a Gentile. I can't go into his house. I might have to eat his food and it might not be kosher. God says, don't you call anything I have made clean, unclean. So that's already happened to Peter. Peter says, hey, I've already met Gentile believers. I've baptized a Roman officer and some of his staff and his household. They all became Christians and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They heard the word of God and believed. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And he continues. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them. Among the Gentiles. So Peter speaks and says, hey, I've seen it. Gentiles believe and are saved. Paul and Barnabas stand up and say, we've seen it. Gentiles believe and are saved. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. And after they finish speaking, James. This is not um, James, the brother of John. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Two different guys with the same name. But he had become, along with Peter and John, one of the leaders in the church. So we've got all the leadership here together. Peter's spoken. 
Paul and Barnabas have spoken. Now James speaks. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's using Peter's Hebrew name. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James gets it. James has had his mind opened to understand that the promise, which formerly was to the Jews, is now to the Gentiles as well. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. The called by my name is the way in which the Old Testament refers to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They are the people called by my name. Now the Gentiles are called by his name as well. Therefore, back to James speaking, my judgment is we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Next slide. So James gives the decision of the council. Now, there's probably a lot more that went on here than Luke has recorded. He's giving us kind of the highlights, the high points. There's probably a lot of debate that is not recorded in detail in the minutes of the meeting. But we know who some of the speakers were. We know who, uh, what the issues were. And now James is announcing the decision. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here's the decree. Abstain from things polluted to idols. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from what has been strangled and abstain from blood. Some of these are pretty easy to understand, pretty obvious and straightforward. Some of them, I confess, one of the reasons why I wanted to go research this is I don't understand some of this. I'm still not sure I understand it completely, but I've, I've found a couple of things that help make it more sense to me at least. These are the only four things that they include in the rain. Here's what all the Gentiles need to do. And actually, it's phrased in, in some ways that are um, maybe not immediately obvious. You have to think about They're not phrased using the same imperatives of the commandments, the Ten Commandments. There's not a thou shalt not. It's almost more of a please than a command. Abstain from things polluted to idols. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from what has been strangled. Abstain from blood. Next slide. So follow up. This looks a little repetitious, and um, it is a little repetitious. But things that are repeated in the scriptures are repeated for a reason. It's not haphazard. If they're repeated, it's probably because they're important and should be thought about more than once. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers in Jerusalem, with the following letters. They're sending a letter back, a written account back to Antioch. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, that's the word ethnos again, 
and Syria and Cilicia. Antioch is in Syria. It's the capital of the province of Syria. Cilicia is the area where Paul and Barnabas had been on their first missionary journey, so they're including all of those. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Next slide. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Short, sweet, to the point. When they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. So here's the letter. It's slightly different from what James said. It's not different in content. It, it, there's a, a difference in order. Um, sexual immorality has moved from the second to the fourth. Sexual immorality and blood have swapped places. So now it's abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, abstain from blood, abstain from what has been strangled, abstain from sexual immorality. So idolatry, blood, and immorality. By the way, abstain from what has been strangled. That one you can pretty easily connect to the second one. The second and the third one really almost two instances of the same thing. An animal that has been strangled has not had the blood drained from it. So if an animal has been strangled, it still has its blood in the, the carcass. If you eat the animal that still has the blood in its carcass, you're violating the second item in the decree. So abstain from blood and don't eat anything that still has blood in it would be another way of, of phrasing that. Um, so let me go back here to idolatry, blood, and immorality. Peter has made what really is almost the first um, creedal statement of what it means to be a Christian. In his speech to the council, we believe, credo, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's, that's really the earliest creed of the church. We believe we will be saved, not by keeping the law, not by being circumcised, not by attending the feasts and festivals. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter's come a long way from the gospel accounts where he doesn't want Jesus to go to Jerusalem. And from the shared belief, certainly, with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we thought he was going to restore the kingdom. Peter's now, you'll pardon the phrase, rock solid. We believe. Here's what we believe as Christians. And he's speaking really not just on behalf of himself. He's speaking for the council. This is an authoritative proclamation. This is really part of the decision of the council. We believe. We will be saved. But the decree of the council is not a rejection of Moses and the Ten Commandments. And let me, let me talk about that. James in his address, oh, I said, yeah, well, yeah, it's actually in, it's in Acts 
It's James speaking. It's Peter speaking in 1511 of the book of Acts. James speaking in 1520. James says, Moses is proclaimed in every city. And so somehow or other, this decree with these four parts is not in conflict with Moses. Because otherwise, James would say, yeah, it's not important. Moses doesn't need to be proclaimed anymore. So let me talk about how this decree actually fits in with the law of Moses. Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. You shall have no other gods before me. The first of the four points of the decree of the Council of Jerusalem is identical with the first commandment. It's just a clarification, amplification, application for the Gentile Christians. And it's basically, you need to be different from the culture that you are a part of. The culture you are a part of worships all sorts of gods, offers in Greek and Roman practice, the offerings were sort of token offerings of incense and a cup of wine spilled every now and then. But the Jerusalem council is saying that part of your culture you need to separate from. That part of your culture you can no longer participate in. Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. It's not just meat sacrificed to idols. It's abstain from anything that's been sacrificed to an idol. Blood, my, my sense is that's connected to the commandment you shall not murder. And I'll explain how that connection gets made. Blood and life. Blood is not just symbolic of life. Old Testament, um, Genesis and Deuteronomy say that life is in the blood. And you shall not commit adultery. Abstain from sexual immorality. The culture that the Gentile converts were coming out of was rife with sexual immorality. Not just adultery, but all sorts of sexual immorality. And so they're saying, basically, the decree is saying, there are parts of Greek culture you need to separate yourselves from. And it's an application of the Mosaic Law. Not that these things save you, but if you do these things... You will do well. Part of our problem with the decree, I think, is we, we want to make too much of it. We want to, we want to look for, you know, the, the, the concepts and the authority of, and, and actually part of that is because of the clumsiness of English. Um, English is not an inflected language. By inflection, I mean you can't change the form of a noun to indicate how it's being used in a sentence. We have to use prepositions and phrases and do things in the passive. And so our our concepts get longer in words. In Greek, those four parts of the decree are literally four single words. Abstain from idolithios, Abstain from Hema, abstain from Nyctos, abstain from Pornea. And it doesn't even repeat abstain. It's abstain from these four things, and they're four words. Abstain from Adolithos, Hema, Nyctos, Pornea. Boom, boom, boom. All you do is remember those four words. And that's the decree of the council. Remember those four things. Don't do any of those four things. And there's one word for each thing. We have to do it with a, with a phrase in English. You don't have to in Greek. So it's four words. 
Idolatry, for all the obvious reasons. Idolatry is a violation of the first commandment. Jesus says so. Jesus says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. That's Jesus' amplification of Exodus 22. Blood. Blood actually and, and the exhortation of the Council of Jerusalem to the Gentile Christians is a, a an evocation of God's covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Noah after the flood. He says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Basically, God had given Adam and Eve the plants and the fruit of the, of the earth for food. God tells Noah, I'm giving you all the animals too. You can eat meat. It's okay to eat meat. But, this is God to Noah, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That's an animal that still has blood in it, a carcass that still has blood in it. Don't eat that. That is, it's blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. It's because of the connection with blood and life. Don't eat blood. Don't eat an animal that still has its blood in it. And then that part of the covenant with Noah is repeated in the covenant with Israel and Leviticus. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. And we're not saved by keeping this rule. We're not not saved if we don't keep this rule. But it is something that God has emphasized in the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Israel through Moses and now with the decree of the council. Because it had been a practice among the nations who had disregarded the covenant with Noah and adopted that. Sexual immorality. Pornia. The English translators of this have always had a hard time with it. King James just settles on fornication and goes on because it's one word in Greek. That's the only word they could come up with in English that was close. But the Greek is actually more comprehensive than just fornication. And for first century Jews, the definition of pornea, what is sexual immorality? What do you mean sexual immorality? They would immediately go to the table of behaviors in Leviticus, Leviticus 20. Leviticus spells out the things that are pornea. Adultery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality. Those things are all pornea. Abstain from them. Rape, by the way, is classified in Deuteronomy as a crime of violence, not a crime of sexual misbehavior. Well, that's why it's not in this list. It's dealt with elsewhere. So, the decree of the council in 49 A.D., is a resolution of that challenge of what are we going to do with the Gentile believers? And the the believers who were Pharisees saying they have to be circumcised, and the council going, no, they don't. And you see this resolution echoed then in all the letters of Paul written after this council. None of Paul's letters had been written yet. 
He writes all of his letters to the churches after this council, and he knows what this council says. And he uses the word mystery a bunch of times. He uses it in Colossians. He uses it in Ephesians. He uses it in Galatians. He says, here's the mystery. What was formerly not known, hidden, but now made known. The mystery is the Gentiles are fellow believers. Salvation is also to the Gentiles. It's not, it's to the Gentiles instead of to the Jews. He says salvation was to the Jews through the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets who proclaimed God's word. He says, here's the mystery. Salvation is now not just to the Jews. It is also to the Gentiles, to the nations. That's the mystery revealed. That's the proclamation of the Council of 49. That's what allowed the church to grow and prosper. That's the message that Paul took. And that's the message that he recorded in his letters to those churches that he had planted. Because he goes on a second journey back to the same territory. He goes on a third journey, comes back to Jerusalem. He's arrested and tried. He goes to Rome. While he's in Rome, he converts members of the emperor's household. Gentile believers. Because the mystery is salvation is not just to the Jews. It is now also to the Gentiles. That's the inclusivity, the universality of the appeal and the proclamation of the gospel. And it had not been completely clarified until that meeting of the church council in 49 A.D., And that's why I think the book, the title of the book, is not an understatement. It is the council that changed the world. It is the council that established that Jewish believers and Gentile believers are all saved the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ and not by keeping the law. Amen. Amen. All right. Let me pray a blessing over us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the record that Luke so faithfully collected and wrote out for us of the important events in the early life of the church, for the clarification of the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus, that his message, that his commissioning to his disciples was to take the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins to all the nations, to all the Gentiles. Thank you that we are adopted into your family, that the salvation that you provided in Jesus is for us as well. We give you thanks. Pray, Father, that you will bless all those here and all those who are watching or listening, that you will give them opportunities to proclaim that good news everywhere they go in the coming weeks. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.